0: Man, that's a tough question, isn't it? Do you want to be like Jesus? And we think we do, we say we do, but when it comes right down to it, I got a feeling that we're a little more reluctant than uh, than we should be about being like Jesus. Well, we're in a study now that we began a couple of weeks ago called Pray Like Jesus, and... We know that we are called to not only walk as Jesus walked, but we're called to pray as Jesus prayed. And that's kind of what this study is is about. We're looking at John chapter 17. And we know that we should pray. We know that we uh, want to pray, but we don't always do that. We know that Jesus modeled a prayer. In fact, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Most of us know that. And um, so we say, well, if I pray that, then I must be praying like Jesus. Well, praying like Jesus is more than a 30-second prayer. By the way, uh, you can say that prayer in less than 30 seconds. Praying like Jesus is much more than saying the Lord's Prayer. It demands discipline. It demands intentionality. It demands commitment. It demands setting that time apart and focusing on God. So as we look uh, at John chapter 17, we're going to look at the prayer that Jesus prayed After he left the upper room with his disciples, before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And like we said last week, it is a prayer that Jesus prayed, first of all, for himself, as we saw last week, uh, as he prayed for believers, as we're going to see today. And he also prayed for unbelievers, as we're going to look at next week. And so that pretty much kind of gives us a panoramic view of who we are, because we all kind of fall in there somewhere, either yourself, believers, or unbelievers. So let's pray for everyone. But the observation we made last week, maybe that what stuck in my head, was that prayer is not just about telling God what we're thinking or what we're wanting or needing, that prayer is all about building a relationship with God. It's just communicating with Him. And so whether we're thanking Him or asking or blessing or praying for other people or praising or whatever we're doing, we're just building a relationship with God through communication. And so that's important that we pray for ourselves as we looked at last week. But well, you know, we also pray for and with other believers, and prayer helps build those relationships as well. As I was writing this, my mind went back about twenty-five or thirty years ago to a couple of guys that I used to spend some time in prayer with, and this was just raw time of sharing. And those two guys became two of my closest friends. As we just pray, we pray for each other's families, we prayed for uh, each other's faith, for their integrity. Uh, We prayed it was an awesome time and our relationships deepened because we prayed together. And so in this second part of Jesus' prayer, he's going to pray for other believers. Now we might think, okay, Jesus is in a critical moment here and he's praying for his disciples who are probably standing around him, listening to him and uh, praying. And and shortly we know that Jesus goes off alone and he prays and his disciples go to sleep and Jesus probably knew that was going to happen. You think Jesus is just praying for those believers in that day. But I want you to broaden your thoughts on that because I want you to think about the prayer being a broader prayer, not just for them in that day, but for all of us today as well, including you and I. And so I think if you think about this prayer being for you personally, it kind of makes it puts a whole new view of it. You know, I understand that Jesus wants this to be a personal prayer for you. So last week, pray for yourself as Jesus did this week, praying for one another. So let's read John chapter 17 and read this in the context of Jesus praying for you personally. Here's what Jesus said. I have revealed you to them. Whom you gave me out of the world. You're part of that them, guys. We're part of the them. They were yours, you gave them to me, and you have, they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus says, we'll stop right there. Jesus says that believers have been given to him by the Father. They were yours. Why are we gods? Because he made us, right? He gave us life. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have come out of the world. Now that's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses there, but it kind of explains the fact that there are two different kingdoms that we have a choice to belong to. The first kingdom is the kingdom of the world, and the second is the kingdom of the word. It's a real easy way to remember that. Without Christ and before Christ, we are in and of the world, which is demonic, evil, wicked. It is everything contrary to what God wants his people to live. And Satan is the one who makes it that way. In fact, Satan is the one who destroys everything. God creates and Satan destroys. God created the world and Satan came in and and he he corrupted it. God gave us uh, uh, the Garden of Eden or gave the Adam and Eve that, and then they were, it was corrupted, they were thrown out. God brought life, and Satan corrupted that. God brings uh, light, and Satan brings darkness. Everything that God uh, attempts to create, Satan comes along and tries to corrupt. And today we live in a world that God made perfect, but Satan corrupted. And because of that, we are citizens of this world naturally. It's where we all began. We are, king, we are citizens of and we are obedient to the kingdom of the world. But when we give our life to Christ, we leave that world and we become citizens of and obedient to the kingdom of the word, the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus said, they have obeyed your word, they have left the kingdom of the world, they're in the kingdom of God. I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. But the Bible says that even though there's darkness around us, that one day Jesus will come back and the kingdom of God culture will undo all of the brokenness, all the darkness, all the corruption that Satan has brought. One day that will happen. He will restore the kingdom, the world, as it was in the beginning, as God intended for it to be. But currently, right now, we live in this conflicted and dark world. And you know what? Jesus knows what it's like to live here. It's one of the amazing things. The Bible says that we don't have a high priest who's aloft and and far removed from us, but we have a, a high priest who came and who is part of our lives, who understands, who actually knows every sin that we've ever experienced. He lived here and it hasn't gotten any better. Believe me, if anything, it's gotten worse, not improved any down through time. So Jesus knows the opposition that we face every day. He knows the discouragements that we face. He knows the temptations. He knows the distractions that we have every day. So part of Jesus' prayer here is to pray for us to resist the pressure of the world that is around us, that's pushing in on us. And I know that you experience that. I know that you know what I mean. We have this peer pressure, we call it, for our kids, but, but it's a, a peer pressure for adults as well, this pressure that tries to conform us to the pattern of the world, The Bible says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your faith. So we live in the world, but the Bible says we're not to be of this world. But you know what? I think it really comes down to what we or who we believe has the truth and where the truth is found. Does the world have the truth or does the word have the truth? Does the world have the truth? You know, the world tries to tell us they know what they're talking about, Right. But we understand and realize that that's a moving target in a lot of ways. But the Word of God is truth. We believe the Bible is the only real truth and the Bible is unchanging. Have you noticed how much the world has changed, even in your lifetime? Have you noticed how things that used to be true are not considered to be true anymore? Have you noticed how things, uh, values have slipped and changed and been reformed by culture? That's what happens whenever you choose the world's truth. It's a moving target, like I said. But God's truth is unchanging. And we have to choose which truth we will live by. So Jesus' prayer is that we as believers will stand firm on the unchanging Word of God. It is where we take our stand, we nail down, we drive a stake in the ground, and we don't move from that. And you know what? In the world we live in today, there's so much pressure that we all need support, We all need encouragement. We need people around us to help us resist the kingdom of the world and embrace the kingdom of the word. So Jesus is praying generally that people, believers, would not be pressured by the outside world. And then Jesus becomes more specific in the next verse. I pray for them, Lord. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. So here is Jesus again the night before his arrest, the most difficult point in his life, but his concern is not primarily for himself. He does pray for himself, but his concern is definitely primarily for us, for believers. And Jesus felt that because he had an ownership. He felt a responsibility. God, you have given me these people. They are yours. You've given them to me. They belong to both Jesus and God. And Jesus knows that everything is coming to a point. He knows that he's going to die on the cross. He understands that. And he wants to give these children, these believers, back to God. You know, I think Jesus felt the pressure of a parent Having given given children to care for. There's something amazingly uh, burdened that you feel when you become a new parent. Most of us have felt that. When God gives you a child, it's like uh, you feel totally inadequate to handle that. I don't know that Jesus ever felt that inadequacy, but he did feel the responsibility and the burden of being able to care for those to whom God had given him. Understand that, you know, he didn't want any of them to be lost. And he says to God, I've saved what you've given to me. You know, almost every parent I know, human parent, is, is probably going to realize at some point they have lost a child. Not, not to death, I'm not saying that, but they just misplaced one temporarily. Anybody have a story that maybe you lost a child? We, we have four kids. I think if you have more than one, you probably, uh, you have more than one child, uh, you're probably going to lose them. You know, somebody said the other day that, you know, one child you, you can pretty much tag team. Two kids, you're man-to-man. Three kids, you're, you're going into zone defense. You're going to have to try to figure out how to, because you can't do man-to-man anymore. I, my, my theory is after three kids, it doesn't matter how many you have, to be honest with you. It's just, it's that three that just that got us. We got over the hump. We had four. It was great. But, but there were times that we weren't really sure where all our kids were at the time. I don't think that makes us bad parents, but it's just a lot of moving pieces. Uh, for example, Lori and I have almost always driven separately to church because I come early, and one day we both get home, and we look around the room and realize that somebody's missing, you know, and it's like, who's missing? I quickly figured out it was Lindsay, it was our oldest daughter, and we had left her at church, you know, it was a great place to leave her, but nobody felt really good about that. Maybe you'd done that, maybe it's like, I, I thought you were picking up the kids. no, I thought you had them, you know, and so you're, even with one or two, that can be a challenge there, but one thing I've found though, is it's really best if the kids never found out they were lost. So if you can cover for, you know, and never really let them know that you didn't know where they were, that you forgot them, uh, because they never forget that. Let me just say, uh, if they find that out. Uh, Sometimes it's the parents' fault, right? You know, sometimes we get busy, distracted. But you know, we can put a lot of responsibility on the children. I'm coming back around. This is going to make sense in a minute, all right? Many times it's the kids' fault. For example, there's two types of kids that get away from you. One of them is a wanderer. Uh, you know, the kid you're shopping, you're focused and that kid is not, everybody else is moving along, but they get, they get distracted by something or they kind of wander off, you know, and pretty soon you're like, have you seen, so no, no, we haven't seen, you have to go look them, look, look for them. But the other type of kid is the runner. This is the kid that you have to have a firm grip on all the time. This is the kid they put leeches on. You know what I'm talking about? The, you know, the, 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 thing that the harness and the humane leash. All right. Um, so there's a runner sometime, you know, and they're just, they're not a horrible kid, but they're kind of bad because they want to get away from you. You know, and those two type of kids that are out there. Now think about the analogy with us and God and us being His kids. You know, sometimes we are prone to wander, right? We're prone to get distracted. We're not, we're not trying to be wrong. We're not trying to be bad. We just get re, we get, we get focused on something we shouldn't. And some of us are easily distracted and wander away from God. But there are other people, of course, who are runners, you know, some of God's kids are runners. They're constantly running from God. And you know And Jesus knows that, and he knows what our tendencies are. He really does. I love that parable that Jesus told about the shepherd who had 100 sheep, and one night in counted, and he only had 99. And there was one missing. We don't know if it was a wanderer or a runner, which one it was, but what did he do? He left the 99, and he went to find that one sheep that was lost because he cares, And what I'm saying is that sometimes we find ourselves like those kids. We wandered or we run away from God, and and, and God cares about us. He doesn't discount us. He doesn't give up on us like that. You know, imagine what Jesus, uh, Jesus had a church, if you will, you might call it that. He had a flock, and sometimes that flock was huge. I mean, sometimes there were thousands of people in, in one city alone who would come to hear Jesus speak and, and, and to be fed, they, they were intrigued by his message or stories, or they wanted free food, or they wanted to be healed, or, or whatever it was, there were a lot of people out there. But you know what? A lot of those people were never really his, and Jesus knew that. A lot of those people came for the free ride, you know? A lot of them came because maybe they had nothing better to do, or they were intrigued for the moment. they came and went much like many people do today in the church. But the ones who had caught the vision and the ones who had accepted the mission were sold out. They were the disciples. They were the ones that Jesus really had, if you will. And so Jesus said, Father, I have taken care of your children, the ones that you gave me. I am leaving and I'm asking you to protect them and take care of them for me. He loved these disciples he had. And then he says, while I was with them, I didn't lose a single one. And then he clarifies it by saying, and this, this had to have been painful for him, <clears throat> No one, that is, (coughs) but the one who is doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't even say his name, but his name is Judas. You know that, right? And the heartbreak that Jesus had because of Judas. You know, Jesus had called 12 men to follow him for two or three years. But in reality, only 11 of those 12 were ever truly on board. And, And I think Jesus knew that maybe early on, maybe at the very beginning, It's interesting in John chapter 6, way back earlier in Jesus' ministry, it says, Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Isn't that interesting how early that that he mentioned that? And and it clarifies, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. And then again in John chapter 12, he, that is Judas, was a thief as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Can you imagine having a mission like like Jesus had and knowing that you had a traitor in your midst, in your inner circle, the one that heard all the strategy, the one that heard, you know, all the vulnerabilities of, of everybody. You got a guy who you know is betraying everything that you have and having to let it go because it was meant to be, in this case, to fulfill Scripture. You know, that doesn't mean that Judas didn't have a choice. Because he did, I am sure that Jesus prayed as hard for Judas as he did for anybody else. But the reality was, he knew Judas's heart, and Judas never truly believed. He may have deceived himself, he may have deceived all the other disciples, He probably deceived the, the congregation, but he never deceived God. And when the chips were down, you know the story, he betrayed Jesus for only a few dollars. In fact, this happened only a few hours before, and in, only a few hours before John 17, at the Last Supper, Jesus gave him the prompt to go. It says in John 13, verse 27, that Jesus was giving them the bread of the Lord's Supper. And it says, as soon as Judas gave, took the bread, Satan entered into him. He's taking communion, and Satan entered into him. Just imagine that moment there. And Jesus told him, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. So yes, Judas had a choice like we all do. But while he was going through all the motions, like everybody else, seemingly on board, on mission, but his heart was far from God. He was maybe even self-deceived. He certainly was lost. You know, every time I think about the story of Judas, I wonder, could one of us be Judas? Could we be Judas hanging on? doing all the right things, hanging out with the crowd, looking right, going through all the motions, but never truly in. And that will be revealed in the end, the Bible said. And if you're in now, will you remain faithful? Will you remain faithful? Will you hang tough and hang strong? Will you finish well? Will you be faithful to the end? Those are difficult questions, but they're so important. You know, the other 11 disciples here and several other followers would would struggle with Jesus' death. We know what happened. We know when Jesus died, they all ran away. Peter denied him and everything. But all of them recovered, and they would be the base to establish the church. Jesus knew that. And he knew also that whenever he left this same force, his enemies that had been out to arrest him and put him to death, these same people were going to direct their attention toward the early church. And they did. It would be difficult. And so he prays for God to protect them and preserve them. They thought they would cut off the head, Jesus, and the body would die. But that's not what happened. Jesus came back to life again, and the body multiplied and grew. In fact, God was faithful to protect them. The church obviously did survive, and it turned the world upside down. So Jesus' prayers were definitely answered. And then Jesus goes on and prays for unity. This is one thing that comes out, comes through this prayer so clearly for unity. He prayed that they may be one as we are one. Obviously, a reference here to the unity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, what we call the Trinity. And he prays here that the church would be one. You know, unity is such an important word in the body of Christ, it is such a treasure that we have to have. When there is disunity, it is so disruptive to the church's mission and ministry. It's so distracting to the world that wants nothing to do with the divided and argumentative church. Unity is so important. We want there to be unity in our church between our leaders, our staff, our church family. We want all the way around. And we find hard to develop unity and keep it. Now, does that mean that we never disagree with each other? Sometimes we disagree, but we try not to be disagreeable in the process. We love and respect one another. We work hard. We work through that. And one thing I can tell you that even though sometimes we disagree, it's not, never about doctrine. It's never about truth. It's always about opinions. And we just respect each other and we work through that. And the reason that we can have unity is because we all agree the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is truth. We center everything on that. It settles our disagreements because it's the basis of truth. If we ever have a disagreement, we say, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? We just go there, read it. If it's an issue that's addressed there, that's great. And that's why we have to hold it dear. Churches and denominations that do not believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God are always going to be divided. They're always going to be a victim of the waves of culture. Real truth is really clear. Opinions are vague. And while there are plenty of areas of opinions and personal preference in the church, we hold the common truth of God's word. In fact, we find unity basically in two places. Number one, the word of God, which is where we take our stand. And secondly, in relationships. In relationships, which is kind of where we're focusing our thoughts, praying for one another. When we are in relationship with one another, we love and respect each other. When you're in relationship and the right kind of relationship, you are humble. And you can either lovingly correct another person or be lovingly corrected if it it's clear in the Bible, because you are subject to the truth of God's word. If something isn't clear in the Bible, then we can respect and acknowledge the opinions of one another. And so when Jesus prays for unity here, he prayed for unity in the body of Christ, in, in the truth of God's word, but also in the relationship, in the, the life of the body, And he prayed for unity, not only in the local church, not only in our body of believers, but in the whole church, the whole church around the world. We believe that we know and hold to the truth of God's word as Journey Church, but we don't own exclusive rights to the truth. We did not claim to be the only church. In fact, one of the things that I love about the Christian church, Independent Christian Church, one of the mottos of the church is we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. We are not the only Christians, but that's all that we are. We don't have a denominational name. We don't have some man's name uh, in, in our title. We are Christians only. And I believe that focusing our thoughts, our heart, and our attention on Jesus helps us be unified. And I want to live that way. I love, I do not like confrontation. I love peace I love unity, I love harmony, and I want to foster and protect unity everywhere I can in our church, but even beyond that. In fact, I want to say I love to work with other ministers and churches who, who, who we agree hold, uphold God's word. I want to pray for unity for those who are true Christians. And in saying that, i would just have to say it's pretty obvious that not everybody is. In fact, Jesus said one day that he would say to those who thought they were in, I'm sorry, I never knew you. I never knew who you were. Now, it's not our right to judge that, who those people are. But the reality is that one day, those who aren't real will be revealed just like Judas was. And God will take care of that issue. But today, we strive for unity in His church, the body of Christ around the world. And the really cool thing is, not only do we experience that in our church family, but even in the video that we saw earlier of someone who came out of a Muslim faith, obviously, I'm not even sure what language that was, Um, that was being spoken, but that we're unified with that woman who was buried with Christ. And that's an incredible thing to think about, the unity of the church, and that we get a chance to participate and help fund the kind of ministry that makes us see things like that. That's cool that we see unity around the world. Now, unity is a great idea, right? Jesus prayed for that, but unity is difficult to build and difficult to retain. And I think there's several reasons for that. One of them is because we all come from different backgrounds. We're all very different. You know, um, most of us, or all of us, I, I assume, many of us, are Protestants. We would call ourselves Protestants. You know what the word, where that word comes from? It comes from the word protest. It's kind of our history, protesters. And it kind of came about because... There was corruption in the Roman Catholic Church, and there was a protest in the Reformation movement to correct that and to get back to the Word of God. So uh, we come back, kind of come from the word protesters, and sometimes, unfortunately, we can be known more for what we're against than what we are for. And so we have to work hard sometimes to be positive, to be for. We want to be for. Jesus. We want to be for people. We want to be for Woodford, for Central Kentucky. We want to be for those things in a positive way. Doesn't mean that we don't sometimes take a stand against what we know is wrong and what we're against, but we want to be primarily for. And so if we approach something thinking, I want to find what I don't like about something and protest it, there's not going to be unity. But if we say what we're for, we're for Jesus, we can be unified. Secondly, I think unity is difficult sometimes because Satan provides demonic attacks to destroy our unity. It's not just our experience. It's Satan who's trying to horn in on our unity and destroy it. And Satan sends wolves into the flock to ravage it. Many times the Bible talks about that. And to be honest with you, it's not just the outsiders. Sometimes there are ministers, church leaders, and pastors who are wolves. Insiders. In fact, Jesus had a wolf in his flock, right? Judas. And because we all come from different backgrounds, and because Satan is always trying to cause division in our church, we try to make sure that before anybody becomes a leader, elder or deacon especially, that we have a lengthy process to make sure that we're all on the same page, that that we're all unified in what we believe and, and how we're approaching things, not only as our doctrine, but also just our model of leadership, our governance model. And both of those are explained, and leaders must agree to be able to support and, and follow those things. Why? Because we're right on everything? No, we're not right on everything, but we want to avoid division at all costs. We're clear who God has called us to be, what our mission is, our vision, our values. We want people to understand this is where we're going to push for, so let's make sure that we're unified on that. There's one other thing that, that complicates unity, and that is church hurt that people have been hurt in church. And you know, I don't really know anybody personally who hasn't been hurt in church. I don't know that person. If you haven't, I bless you, but you probably will be at some point. But a lot of times we have a hard time letting go and forgiving people, even if we've moved on somewhere else. So if that's you and you've been hurt at some point, please forgive those people, even if they don't deserve it or whatever, and move on and commit to unity. And if you can't do that where you are, then I would encourage you to do it somewhere else but don't cause problems in your church. Let's finish up the scripture. John chapter 17, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth because your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. So again, Jesus is praying here for believers, and he kind of gives us a model to pray for others as well. You know, last week I kind of gave you a model. I gave you a prayer list if you want to pray for yourself. We said pray Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit. You know, you can just write those down. That's your prayer list. Here's a prayer list for other people that Jesus gives us here. How do we pray for other believers? Number one, Jesus said, pray for joy. He says, I pray that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. That's important to have joy in the Christian life. We spent over a month right before Christmas learning how to have joy in spite of challenges. If you're struggling and frustrated, go back. Maybe uh, uh, just remind yourself. But not only does joy make life more enjoyable, but it also connects with the Holy Spirit. Remember, one of those fruits of the Spirit is joy, right, that we ought to be praying for. We ought to pray that believers find joy for the long haul. If you see a believer that you feel like is struggling, maybe you ought to pray for them to have joy to be able to sustain the long haul of living for Jesus. Secondly, pray for truth for believers. Jesus said, your word is truth. There is no truth in the world today. It's another great great reason not to change or dilute the Bible because it's the only sure source of truth. And we ought to pray truth for a believer who is struggling that they would discover truth, that they would rely upon truth, build their life on truth, discern the differences between truth and lies. Truth is what sanctifies us. Remember last week, Jesus talked about praying for yourself that you would be sanctified or made holy. Truth is what makes us holy. And thirdly, believe that, or pray that believers find purpose, that we find purpose in life. We are being sent out into the world, and, and, and <coughs> Jesus is praying for his disciples who will be sent. Sent... <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. The idea of being sent is a big idea with John. In fact, 40 times in this gospel he talks about being sent. When you discover that you are being sent to others, that gives you purpose for your life. Someone was sent to help you find Jesus, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, coworker, whoever it may be. Who are you being sent to help? In verse 15, Jesus said, "Do not take my disciples out of the world." It would be a lot easier, I've always thought, if the moment we gave our life to Christ, we were just you know shot out of here and we were in heaven. It would be so much easier, but it doesn't work like that, does it? We are here and we have a purpose and we are being sent to others. Jesus said, don't take them out of the world, but protect them and send them out. Send them out. Next week, we're gonna talk more about being sent to the lost, praying for and being sent to lost people. But understand that the church is like a rescue ship let us send out to those who are lost and those who are drowning. We're being sent out and we're rescuing people with the truth. We're lifting them out of the dangerous from drowning and restoring them and taking them to a safe harbor. And to do that, we have to stay in the world. The ship has to go out into the water, into the storm, to get those who are struggling and those who are drowning. We can't do the work in the harbor, right? It has to be out there, but we can't let the wave swamp the boat either and destroy it and overcome it we have to pre- preserve ourselves we have to understand that we're sent that we have a purpose that we go out and then we come in but you know most of all from all of this just in wrapping up we need to know that people truly matter to god that jesus is is not just praying for himself it's not selfish at all we we talked about his why he wanted to be glorified to glorify god last week And then we're going to talk about Jesus is concerned about lost people, but understand that he's concerned about you personally. He really cares about you. If you're a child of God, understand that not just then, 2,000 years ago, did Jesus pray for you, but he is praying for you right now as well. This is really cool. I'm going to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who came to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that incredible that right now Jesus is making intercession for you before the Father? He is still praying for you. He knows how difficult life is here, and He wants you to succeed in the Christian life. And so He gives His prayers, also His help and His strength, the Holy Spirit we have today. But you know what? Once we've experienced that, we also have to give that to other people as well. And that's why we are called like Jesus to pray for one another, to pray for one another. So I would encourage you, if you are restructuring your prayer life to think about praying for yourself, praying for others, think about the people that you know who may be struggling or the people that you know who may be popping, the ones that you know you should be investing in and be praying for those people and pray for them like Jesus.